Welcome to Language and Justice, a podcast about the intersection of, you guessed it, language and justice. Episode 1, Communication Breakdown. Have you ever spoken to someone for the first time and found yourself surprised by the way they talked? What did you think to yourself in that moment? Chances are you made some kind of a judgment. Could have been positive or negative. We make judgments about people's language use constantly, often without even noticing. But how often do those judgments lead to some kind of consequence? Well, maybe not all the time, but when they do, the consequences can be pretty grave, and some kind of injustice usually isn't far away. The relationship between language and justice isn't always a straightforward one, and it's worth talking about in some detail since issues of linguistic injustice are so misunderstood. But one thing's for certain, they are everywhere, all around us. If I've piqued your interest, stick around. The kinds of injustice resulting from these judgments are precisely the focus of this series. But before we dive into linguistic injustice, let's get started by talking a little bit more about language in general. Much of what this show will talk about is grounded in linguistics, the scientific study of language. Linguistics studies the sounds, structures, and systems that make up language. To be more specific, this show is grounded in sociolinguistics which is the study of language in relation to the social and societal factors that influence it, and which are, in turn, influenced by language, too. So maybe a good place to start is, what do we mean by language? While we'll talk about several hard-to-define terms on today's show, perhaps language is the most fundamental. But the truth is, you probably already know what language is. It's a system of sounds that are structured together to be used for human communication. On one hand, language exists in our minds, but it really gets interesting, well, for a sociolinguist at least, when it gets out into the world. It can be thought about in the abstract, such as language is the thing that separates us from animals, or it can be thought about in terms of discrete entities, as in, how many languages do you speak? Let's focus in on the latter for a moment. When you travel to a different country, you might find yourself surrounded by people who speak a different language than you. You know that it's a different language, presumably because you can't understand a word of it. You have a clear idea in your mind that the way people are communicating around you is different from the way you communicate at home, probably in a number of ways. How about when you travel to a faraway part of your own country? The people there might talk different too, sometimes so much so that you can't even understand them. But are they speaking a different language? And how can you be sure? What I'm getting at here is that there is a blurry line between what defines two different languages and what defines two different dialects. Linguists have argued at length for a long time about what differentiates a language from a dialect. But if you're not coming from a background in linguistics, you might have a certain negative or pejorative idea that comes to mind when you hear the word dialect that it's some kind of less legitimate form of a language that's spoken in a certain region and or by a specific group of people. There is some truth to this definition. Yes, dialects are often confined to a certain region or 
otherwise a specific group of people. But to classify dialects as less legitimate, that's something a linguist would not do. And it's not just because we don't want to offend people who speak different dialects, although not offending people is always a good goal. In reality, from a linguistic point of view, there's very little that separates a dialect from a language. A famous sociolinguist once said that a language is nothing but a dialect with an army. It may have more power, but that's about it. In other words, languages and dialects are essentially two words for the same concept, i.e. a particular way of communicating that has its own unique vocabulary, rules, and so on. So when a language is deemed a language, and a dialect deemed merely a dialect, it is entirely because of socio-political reasons, and not linguistic ones. What do we mean by linguistic reasons? Well, if a system of communication can be used to communicate, then it's doing its job. Sure, you might not understand a speaker of a different dialect as well as you would understand a speaker of your own dialect, but that's the case with languages too. And no one seems to think French is less legitimate than English just because English speakers can't understand French. The sounds, structures, and systems are different, but the rules, logic, and organization of these sounds and structures are still there, whether the variety of communication is referred to as a dialect or a language. Oftentimes, one variety is heightened to what's known as the standard, and all other forms are considered dialects. But this, too, is because of arbitrary reasons, having nothing to do with linguistic value or merit. A standard language is often seen as the most correct or proper version, but it's only become that way due to the fact that it is the standard, not the other way around. Put differently, what's perceived as most correct or proper is the language that has been deemed the standard the one that has the most power. We must always keep in mind that national standards are at least semi-artificial creations, as historian Eric Hobsbawm has said, and are usually attempts to devise a standardized idiom out of a multiplicity of actually spoken idioms which are downgraded to dialects. In hearing about the ways that some forms of communication are more valued than others, in that they are seen as more correct or more proper or just better, I'm sure you've already picked up on the ways that thinking about different varieties of language in this way can very easily lead to linguistic discrimination, or some kind of negative treatment based on the way a person uses language. It's definitely a slippery slope. Just like all other forms of discrimination, linguistic discrimination usually stems from judgment of some kind, which, as we already mentioned, is extremely common when listening to or watching how another person uses language. So whenever someone uses a dialect or language that is for some reason perceived as unacceptable, improper, inappropriate, or just wrong, linguistic discrimination can arise. Let's think about some hypothetical examples. Think about when a new speaker of English is denied a job opportunity due to their level of proficiency in the language. You may argue that this denial may be justified, as clear communication is a necessary component of many types of jobs, and someone who doesn't speak the language well simply wouldn't be able to keep up with the demands. Now, some may disagree with that reasoning from the beginning, pointing out that what makes for clear communication is highly subjective. But, let's just assume that you agree that job opportunities can be denied on the basis of language. Well, how about when the same person is denied housing because of their accent? In this case, it would be harder to make an argument for why a certain level of English proficiency would be required, wouldn't you say? 
Or let's say it's not even the same person, the person who's new to speaking English. It could be someone whose first language is English, who's been speaking English their entire life, and, like most American English speakers, they happen to speak with a non-standard accent. Is denial of housing justified in that case? Well, I'd hope your answer would be no. Of course not. That doesn't seem fair. And yet, this kind of linguistic discrimination happens, and it has been proven. In an experiment where the same person called a real estate agency to make the same request using three different accents, linguist John Bow coined the term linguistic profiling to describe what he found. White-sounding voices were more likely than Black or Latinx-sounding voices to get called back by the agency. So much for fair. Take another example. Imagine you meet someone who is a newly arrived immigrant to the United States, from Germany or maybe Japan. Chances are your new friend is a fluent speaker of German or Japanese, but they might be new to speaking English. Here's the thing. Frequently, relatively new speakers of English are seen as lacking in some kind of intellectual ability. They might be told they speak English badly or that their English is broken. They might even be described as lazy for the way that they speak English or be perceived as less intelligent than someone who's been speaking the language their whole life. Meanwhile, this same person likely has fully developed capabilities in a language other than English, along with its culture and all kinds of knowledge that the average American English speaker lacks. So, as Canadian scholar Vijay Ramjatan points out, why is it the immigrant speaker who is seen as having a deficit, when in reality they come bearing incredible know-how that the rest of us are lacking? This is just one more way that language use, a task that requires high cognitive demand no matter what the variety, is politicized and turned into a means for discrimination. Some linguists have tried to explain that different language varieties may have significant differences and still be considered equal, while others point out that there's no getting away from the fact that some varieties just have more political power than others, and that this power can never be overlooked or overcome. These two ways of thinking are known respectively as the difference approach and the dominance approach. They're often used to explain how men communicate differently than women, for example. However, some scholars have tried to go beyond these two views, like Diana Eads, who proposes that we all try to combine both viewpoints and take it a step further, to what she calls the discourse approach. Yes, varieties differ, and yes, power structures will always play an important role, but we also have the agency to use our words in ways that will achieve certain aims. Through the discourse we choose to use, we have the power to make a change. I guess you could say that's what I'm trying to do here. If you've ever learned a new language, surely you're aware that languages can differ from one another in a number of ways. You might have noticed that the sounds are different, making it sometimes feel impossible to get the pronunciation just right when you're speaking a language other than your first. Of course, the words too are different, and that's why you spend hours memorizing lists of vocabulary and can still feel quite inadequate when trying to converse with a local. The grammar rules are certainly different as well. And what often causes language learners even more dismay than memorizing vocabulary lists is memorizing rules. Where in the sentence can you place an adverb or a preposition? How does the verb get conjugated in the past tense or in the subjunctive? Why is everything so complicated? 
On top of all those kinds of differences, there are also differences in things like intonation patterns and timing. For instance, in English, you can ask a question just by changing the pattern of your vocal pitch. You can ask a question just by changing the pattern of your vocal pitch. See what I mean? And that's not the case for all languages. Timing can also be important. In some languages, you're expected to leave long pauses of silence between turns, while in others, that kind of silence would be misunderstood, and another speaker would quickly jump in to fill the gap. The fact that there are so many specific components of a language that most speakers are not even consciously aware of is one reason why it can be so challenging to learn a new one, or at least to learn it to a point where you feel 100% comfortable communicating. So if this feels familiar, then you know that languages can differ in terms of sounds, words, grammar rules, and speech patterns. You may never have thought about these things in your own native tongue, but sure enough, they are there. What you might also not have realized is that in all the ways that languages can differ, dialects can too. On this show, since we'll mostly be speaking about linguistic injustice in English and in the North American context, we'll spend most of our time talking about the significance of the many kinds of differences that can exist within one language. With all of these differences, you may be wondering, how is it that we can ever even communicate at all? How do we understand each other in the first place? How is it that not all interactions end in communication breakdown? These are very good questions to ask, and we'll come back to them later today. Whenever you're talking to someone who differs from you in any way, you're going to come across some level of difficulty. You might have different accents due to being from different cities, or you might use different lingo due to being from different generations, or you might just have different styles of communicating, and all of that is normal. For this reason, on this show, we might use the term intercultural communication as a pretty wide-ranging term that can refer to communication across countries and languages, but also across genders, age groups, political systems, and even just groups of friends who have different hobbies. All of these differences can be thought of as cultural differences. The word culture is so all-encompassing and hard to define that we prefer to follow the sociolinguist John Gumpers, who suggests that rather than wasting our time trying to accurately define cultural difference, why not just spend that time trying to understand how culture affects communication? and figuring out how to alleviate any kinds of potential communication difficulty that might arise. Some linguists, notably in the early 20th century, subscribed to the idea that language and culture are so intertwined that our thought processes and our abilities to understand the world are entirely defined by our language. This theory is known as linguistic relativity, and when taken in its extreme form, it means that the fact that you and I speak different languages means that you and I literally see the world differently. If your language has a word for something that mine is lacking, then there's no way I can come to understand that concept. Needless to say, it's a bit extreme. Although linguists today are much more wary of this idea, it is enticing enough that the general public has picked it up time and time again. If you saw the movie Arrival starring Amy Adams in 2016, you might recall that the aliens could time travel due to the tense structure of their language, and that when Amy learned the language, she could suddenly time travel too. It doesn't exactly work that way, 
and because the concept is so easily misunderstood, it is largely rejected by linguists today. However, many experts will still accept that linguistic relativity has at least some truth to it, because after all, language and culture are intertwined, and deeply so. That much is undeniable. In fact, linguist William Foley came up with a new term in the late 1990s to reconceptualize the idea of linguistic relativity in a way that was less easily distorted. This idea was called communicative relativity, and it explains a lot about the way communication can be affected by culture, as well as upbringing, different assumptions, and more. An easy way to sum up this concept is Ingrid Piller's short and sweet explanation. Humans do different things with language differently. In talking about language and culture, a couple of important notes come to mind. First, because this show comes from a United States context, I want to point out something that many U.S. Americans do not know, but which is absolutely crucial to thinking about how we communicate in this country on all levels. Did you know that the United States does not have an official national language? Really. Everything in the U.S. seems to happen in English, from the language of government and politics, to the language of the courts and the classrooms, to the language you're expected to use when you walk into a business. Of course, there are plenty of pockets throughout the country where multilingualism is common, and you can walk into a business speaking another language and be understood. But there are also many places in this country where you might be criticized or judged for doing that. You might even be told, this is the United States, speak English. An Arizona news anchor was even criticized for just pronouncing words with a non-English accent, words that were Spanish in origin like the names of towns called Mesa and Casa Grande. Her name is Vanessa Ruiz, and as someone who was raised bilingual in English and Spanish, she maintained that that's how the words were supposed to be pronounced. But to many viewers, this was an affront to U.S. identity. But how can this be the case when English isn't even the national language? It doesn't make sense. Here's another important note, especially for those U.S. listeners. Being multilingual is an asset for your brain, for your career prospects, for your ability to interact with people who are different from you, and for your whole life. But because being monolingual English speakers is the norm in the United States, many people don't value language. Many people see multilingualism as a failure. Like we mentioned earlier, often people who speak English as a second language and speak another language first are seen as having a deficit of some kind when in reality, they have a huge intellectual capacity that is in so many ways advantageous. That being said, we do like to praise multilingualism in certain circumstances, notably when a rich white person speaks a language like French or Mandarin, and we go, wow, they're so cultured, they're going places in life. How is it that one person can be cultured for speaking multiple languages when another person who actually has another culture, is seen as having something wrong with them. I bring up these points because they're so important to remember any time we think about language and the issues of injustice that go along with it. So keeping in mind how much our language is tied up with our culture, and we might as well extend that to say also some of our most deeply held facets of personal identity, it's really no wonder that people with any kind of differences, even slight ones, are going to encounter slight misunderstandings due to their different ways of communicating. So let's talk about that. 
Again, when I say people with differences, I'm not just talking about someone on the other side of the planet who speaks a different language than you from birth. I'm also talking about people in your inner circle, your neighbor who lives down the block, your grandparents and other relatives, even your closest friends and partner. The sociolinguist Deborah Tannen has famously written extensively about these kinds of subtle differences in communication styles, which can cause so much strife in one household. Some of her work focuses on gender-based differences in communication, but much of it is generalizable to all kinds of differences that exist among people in the world. One idea that she's helped popularize is that there are some major differences which can be described as involvement and independence in communication styles. While some people take more of an involvement approach to communication by trying to get and give feedback and use collaborative strategies, others might take a more independence-based approach, trying to give the other person space and not overstep. In both cases, the speakers and listeners are coming to the interaction with their very best intentions, trying to be respectful while achieving whatever their purpose was in communicating in the first place. But the problem is that they are bringing different expectations to the interaction. The speaker who's coming with an involvement approach will probably talk a lot and ask their listener a lot of questions, trying to show that they care by being invested in their personal life, while the hearer might think, why is this person so nosy? On the other hand, the speaker who's coming with an independence approach might try to leave a lot of space between their comments not ask too many questions, and keep the conversation short, unintentionally leaving their hearer to think, why isn't this person more interested in talking to me? Tannen's ideas and many others who have studied communicative styles have pointed out the different needs that we all have as participants in interaction. And so rather than defining two separate types of people, these concepts are really used to describe some of the various aspects of all of our very human needs for communication. Sometimes we want to talk more, and sometimes we want to talk less. Sometimes we want to project a version of ourselves that is collaborative and deeply involved in the other person, while other times we want to project a version of ourselves that conveys deference and leaves space. And sometimes we feel like narrating every thought that passes through our heads, getting input from other people along the way, while other times we just keep things to ourselves, not wanting to burden someone else with our worries. No matter which strategy we're using, it's probably with the same intention, to be polite and respectful of the other person. The thing is, when people have such different ideas of how to best communicate, we find ourselves once again asking the question, how do we ever communicate effectively at all? And while there is no one answer to this question, we can at least think about a few things that can help make it happen. For one thing, we are constantly making assumptions as we go. As I talk, I'm making the assumption that you understand what I'm trying to say. And as I listen, I'm making the assumption that what I'm interpreting is what you meant to say. And all the while, we're all just hoping that the assumptions we're making are correct. We're also frequently looking for both verbal and nonverbal confirmation that our assumptions are correct, such as nodding, uh-huh, and so on, so that we can know that we're on the same page. We have what Stephen Levinson calls interactive intelligence, the innate human capacity to draw inferences from ambiguous information. And really, it's all ambiguous, so we're doing a pretty great job anytime we get it right. It also helps to already have some common knowledge established, 
giving us some kind of context to draw from. For instance, if I'm talking to someone from my neighborhood about the owner of the shoe store on the corner and refer to him as Bob, I probably don't need to give a full, in-depth explanation of who Bob is and how I know him, because my neighbor already knows Bob, and that is a piece of knowledge that we share. Hence, the less I share in common with my interlocutor, the more I might have to give in terms of contextual information. Another thing that helps to make communication easier is when we follow pre-existing scripts. We do this all the time in daily interactions. Think about when you go to the grocery store. You know pretty much all the answers to the questions before you even get there. Did you find everything you need? Need a bag? Do you want paper or plastic? Or when you cross paths with a colleague and they ask, how are you, without even slowing down, and you know that this person is probably not asking for you to tell a long-winded story about how you had to take your cat to the vet this morning and they might need to go on antibiotics again because the eye infection isn't going away and the poor little kitty has a goopy eye. You'd know based on previous interactions that the expected response to this particular how are you would be fine thanks and you? As you can already tell from this introduction, language and communication are complicated, to say the least. And while for the most part we get through our days just fine, sometimes miscommunicating can lead to real issues. Sometimes those issues are purely interpersonal, like the miscommunication that might arise in a romantic relationship when one person misunderstands the other's intentions, while other times those issues lead to linguistic discrimination in the workplace, or the courtroom, or the classroom, and beyond. Linguistic injustice really permeates many aspects of our social world, and if you ask me, we don't spend enough time thinking or talking about it. So here we are. If you've liked what you've heard so far, stay tuned for coming episodes where on top of providing further information on topics like linguistic injustice in the legal system or in healthcare, I'll go into greater depth on each of these issues, providing real-world examples and case studies that demonstrate just how important these issues are. In the meantime, I hope you'll take some time reflecting on your own daily interactions, how often you find yourself making assumptions, what kinds of judgments you make when speaking to someone new, how often you notice that someone misinterprets what you say, and most of all, how on earth we get through any interactions without communication breakdown. Until next time, this has been Language and Justice. Language and Justice is written, created, and produced by Anya McElinden. For more information, you can visit language-n-justice.com or find us on social media at langjusticepod. Questions, comments, and concerns are welcome. Language and Justice can be found on Spotify, Apple Music, and wherever else podcasts are found. Remember, language is a social justice issue. So let's talk about it.